And right off, we have a remarkable, not a switch really, but moving into the final session after every night. In a sense, we've been, been talking about being in the night, about the night breaking upon us, and about living in that dark. Remember that opening uh, passage from Bernard of Clairvaux about the dark of unknowing that we people stumble about in a dark of unknowing. I've had so many of my friends, uh, particularly in the States over the last few weeks, write to me and say, I am, I'm going through a conversion. I, I have to find another way of dealing with the anger, the frustration, the humiliation that we're feeling as human beings, as Americans, but I think as people in what's happening in a, in a very public way. Um, I mean, I don't have any real comment to make about the Brexit struggle here, but I think what we're going through in the States um, makes Brexit look like a small issue to me. And that may only be because I'm an American and not a Brit. But um, the world is in a precarious place. And uh, Europe is in a very difficult place. You know that if you're following the news even halfway. What's happening in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Hungary, in Poland in Sweden. It's sweeping across um, the world we live in, the Western world, a coldness, a selfishness, a fear. And it really is a moment when I think people of deep conviction are more needed than ever. Now, this is what I've been hearing from friends. Not that I'm disengaging, but that I'm engaging more deeply. I have to be a beacon of a different, a different word in a time like this. So. Yes, we can. <laughs> Friedrich von Hügel, remarkable voice of the 100 years ago. All deepened life is deepened suffering, deepened dreariness, deepened joy. All deepened life is deepened suffering, deepened dreariness, Deep in joy. It's a statement so strange and so impossible that it has to be true. And before we move into the deep and joy part, what he, this comes in a little book he wrote to his niece. It's called Letters to, Letters to My Niece. Still in print, still worth reading, remarkable. She was 16, I think, when he wrote these letters one of the most distinguished uh, literate men of the 20th century. And uh, trying to through, it's sort of like a C.S. Lewis letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. I mean, there are a number of books like that that can then shape your life when you read them. This is one of them, letters to my niece or letters to a niece. What I think von Hugel realized is what we've been talking about all, all morning. And that is that the dark, I love the dark hours of my being. I don't like them. But I love them, writes Rilke. Because in them, something happens. And the phrase that came from, I don't remember your name, and I don't know your name actually in the back. Uh, no, in front of you? Lucy, Lucy. But Linda, you were on, on the, the heels of it too. That these things don't happen 
to us. They happen in us. These changes don't happen to us as if something simply is done for us. It won't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. It happens through deep, tenacious courage of staying where we are and waiting there for light to come. One of the most difficult things in the world for any of us to do. And I think Van Hurgel gives us a sense of what this might look like. We all want a deep life, but most of us don't want deep and dreariness or deep and suffering. But we don't get to deep and joy without these things. It's empirically true. You can find happiness another way, but you don't get to deepen joy along other roads than this one. Yes. Is it's a purging, it's a burning away of, as we said, we're saying this morning of things that maybe. We, we, there were that are not eternal, that we, that we didn't, couldn't hang on to anyway. Yes. Now we have to find a new way of, of facing and bringing into our own experience, into our life. Yes, I can keep going. I can keep going. Yeah. It's the middle part here that is the puzzling one because the deep in suffering, I think we can understand that. That's deep in suffering, deep in, but deep in dreariness? That's a puzzle. I want to hold that thought in our minds as we begin this afternoon's session because there's something about dreariness. I, I used to tell my children, they would come to me and say, Dad, I'm bored. I would say, Fantastic. That's a great opportunity. They'd say, no, no, you didn't hear me. I'm bored. Yes! Stay with that, you know? Don't fix it. Don't fill it up. They're now growing up, and they still remember bad. Yeah. But there's something about dreariness. There's something about te tedium that's important in our human experience. And naturally, we want to fill it up, push it away. We don't want dreary. We don't want January or February. They say about the northern New England seasons, there are two seasons. There's mud season and there's August. Um, a lot of dreary. A lot of dreary. But there's something about deepened dreariness. So hold that in your mind. Deepened dreariness. We'll come back to it later this afternoon. I'm giving you the whole poem this time, right up front, because this poem is a stunner. And if you can remember what we were talking about earlier, let's see. Uh, here. So you see how far it's going to go. That was the point of showing you the poem. It's a, it's a long poem that we've looked at up until now, three large stanzas. And it ends with this statement of gratitude. But let's see how he gets there. Only as a child was I thus awakened. Now, to understand a little bit about Rilke, already as a young person, he had a very important relationship with a woman, a Swedish 
psychologist named Ellen Key, who was um, among the first to really write about childhood psychology. And Rilke was fascinated with her, and she was quite fascinated with him. And it became a lifelong friendship, a literary friendship, over, over, over many years. Something in this poem comes out of that, the conversations and the engagement, because she helped Rilke understand that his frustrations as a child were important for his creative life. It was not the problem to be moved beyond. But the tensions, the frustrations, the dreariness, the horror of his childhood, he described it as one prolonged agony, was the heart of his creative power as a writer and of his creative life as a human being. And this poem begins to kind of give a sense of what that looked like. Earlier we, we used, uh, saw the poem about the, the dead boy and the above the grave. The, the child who has to be, in a sense, brought into a second life. Now, toward the end of the sequence, Rilke comes back to the same themes with a very different message. Only as a child was I thus awakened, so secure in my trust to look upon you, God, again, after every fear and every night. This is the beginning. I live in a city in Bochum, and when I moved to Bochum years ago, a German neighborhood, now it's um, a heavily a migrant neighborhood, refugee neighborhood. Quite a few of the thousands of refugees have moved into this part of the city because um, a couple of big factories closed in Bochum, which was bad news for the city. Uh, leaving lots of apartments open, and a large percentage, I think it's 60% of the refugees to Germany over the last year have ended up in the Ruhrgebiet, the region where we live, where I live. Uh, so it's a, a large number. So when I get on the bus in the morning to go to the university, it's about a 30-minute, 25-minute ride. I used to hear German, and now I hear languages I've never imagined hearing. And one thing that struck me over the last six or eight months is the resilience of children. Their eyes are often quite different than their parents' eyes. Their faces are quite different than their parents' faces. And I can't really do an empirical study of this because I can't speak with them. They don't speak German. But you can see in the eyes of the children something that's a flicker of light that's different than in their parents. Only as a child was I thus awakened, so secure in my trust to look upon you again after every fear and every night. Children haven't yet been socialized into expecting that things won't change. That was a long negative, double negative. Children expect things to change. They do. It can be beaten out of them through terrible hardship, through horrible suffering through dreariness that isn't deepened dreariness, that's just horrible dreariness and an angst, fear. But there's something about a child who, after the night, expects the next day to be different. It's just 
the way children are. It's one of the great gifts that children bring to those of us who sometimes lose that, that hope that, in fact, this could be the day when my second life, timeless and wide, can begin. See what Rilke does with this. This is nothing startling. This is something that we all know, uh, having spent time with children in our lives. Yes, God, God, yeah. It's a great question, because these poems, when he first wrote them, having come back from Russia, he um, wrote them as prayers. He called them the prayers, simply, the prayers. And they're all addressed to God. The God who comes forward in these poems is not the God of conventional Catholic piety. It's a God shaped by his experiences in Russia, his experiences with the Orthodox Church, particularly with monasteries, the dark spaces, the luminous, the glowing uh, icons, flickering icons with the candlelight and so on. Well, it's, um, we could say much more about that, but let me leave that for now. The, the, the you is God. I know whenever my thinking takes stock how deep, how long, how wide you are and are and are. The marvelous lines. Ich weiß so oft mein Denken misst, wie tief, wie lang, wie weit du bist und bist und you are and are and are. It's an awkward sentence, but I think true. The sense of God enduring through the night and of Rilke through, through his childhood growing into adulthood, realizing that there's something in this presence that's inexhaustible. How deep, how long, how wide du aber bist und bist und bist. But you are and are and are, having trembled about in time. Yeah, absolutely. This is the intimate God, and um, he always addresses God in the do form here. That's a thank, thank you. Du bist und bist und bist. Having trembled about in time. There's a word trembling again. Let's come forward now in three of the poems that we've looked at. It seems as if now I'm now at once a child and a boy, a man and more. And I've come to feel that this ring enriches us only in its circling. This is an agonizing stanza to translate. I think I, think I have it right. It seems as if 
Er ist, als wäre ich jetzt zugleich. Kind, Knab und Mann und mehr. It seems as if now I'm at one and the same time. All of these things. A child, a young boy, a man and more. Und mehr and more. And I've come to feel that this ring, this Kreis, enriches us only as it comes around again. It's Vidarkeya, it's circling. It's coming back around. What, what, do you, what do you see here? What's he describing? Describing his own experience. It seems as if now, as a young adult, I'm all these things I was. What do you, what do you sense here? What, what's he saying? Yeah, the first life, the second life, the growth through life. It comes with us. It, 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 it's something that comes with us. And there's something in the child that he sees, despite his own agony experience, as being essential to his adult life. What is it? What is it? Sorry? Experience. His experience? Vital. What else? What is it about childhood here that he's drawing upon? Sorry? It's always with us. It's always with us. It leaves an imprint. It keeps us. The child is never gone in us. The question is, can we attend to that? Can we, can we find a way to gather the, the strength of childhood as adults in our life? What does a child bring that we need? A sense of wonder. Yeah, an openness. Every day is new. Everything is new. I mean, it's true for all of us, but we forget that. But you see a child who sees something for the first time or hears a word for the first time. And what do children do when they hear a word for the first time? They repeat it. They, they play with it. They sing it. They, make, they turn it into a rhyme. Who knows? Almost anything. And we hear a new word and we think, oh, let's look it up on, you know, Wikipedia or online or whatever. Dictionaries are gone. No, I mean, a child reminds us of the delight of discovery. And that child is in each one of us. It's in you. It's in me. But, but often, we lose it. Why? Why do we lose that? What happens to us? Yeah, sure, we have to get tough. Right. You don't want to show that you're discovering something for the first time, do you? That you didn't know things? Do you want to show that? Just try sometime, just, this is not a nasty thing to do, but you'll do it, will you? Make up a name and just in a casual conversation, think, oh, you know about Abigail Smith, of course, her recent book. Oh, yes, oh, yes, right? I, I'm on the other side of that. I'll say, oh, oh, yes, Josie tells me that. Oh, yes, I've, I know about that. I know about that. You know what I'm talking about? It's hard to admit that we don't know. It's hard to admit that we're, that we're in darkness that we're ignorant, that, we, that we're not in control. But a child delights, oh, tell me about Abigail Smith. I don't know that book, you know. Read it to me. Show me. That power of the child to invent life, 
over and again is one of the reasons that um, we need children in our lives, little ones. Yeah? The psychic fingerprint. The child within is the psychic fingerprint. It's a marvelous image. And Rilke really is saying here, it's not that we go back to childhood and stay there. No, we can't do that. It would be a horror for us as adults. No, there's a, a vida care. There's a circling around in our lives. It's so important for us. Because the child refuses to imagine that last night's fears will happen again tomorrow until the sting of that reality may be too, too great. But it's the after every fear and after every night that I want us to think about this afternoon. The poem goes on. It seems as if now at once I'm a child and a boy, a man and more. And I've come to feel that this ring enriches us only in its circling, that it's not linear. We don't grow out of childhood that we gather that part of our experience with us in our lives. I thank you. Ich danke dir. Du tiefe Kraft. I thank you, you deep power that always seems to work on me more quietly as if behind many walls. Now, What's he saying here? Just a little bit of background to these poems. They're written, inspired by his new experience of the Russian church, and particularly the monastic churches that he had visited in his first trip to Russia. And he writes about the walls in the churches. What are the walls? Josie, you have to remain silent on this one. What, what walls do you see in churches, in Orthodox churches? Yeah, the iconostasis. The, the, it, it's, it's a solid wall all the way up to the ceiling, generally. What's on the wall? Icons from the bottom to the top. If you go to the Kremlin, to the churches in the Kremlin, where he spent days during the Triduum, walking through, praying in these churches, you don't see anything on the other side. But what happens on the other side? There is another side. What, what happens back there behind this wall? Yeah, the transformation. The priest vest, the deacon, you hear that. The service has technically begun, though nobody needs to be in the church. Senses the altar, which is on the other side. You don't see the altar in Orthodox Church. It's on the other side. The holy mysteries are happening in a place you can't see. This made so much sense to Rilke. It, it shapes these poems so profoundly that it's in what we can't see that the heart of the mystery is alive. And behind the walls, that's an image he uses repeatedly through these poems, is not a negative thing. It's, in fact, for him, a description of what's real that the deepest mysteries are things that lie behind what It seems to me as if I'm now at once a child and a boy, a man and more, 
I thank you, you deep power, that always seems to work on me more quietly. Immer leiser. As if behind feeling as if behind many walls. Now the workday becomes simple for me, like a holy face to my dark hands. This is one of the last poems. And you feel that in the sequence of poems from the first part of the, what became the Stundenbuch, the Book of Hours. Eventually it was, he, he changed the title from simply the prayers to what he called the Book of Monastic Life, or Monkish Life, it's sometimes translated into English. And at the very end of this poem, you see him moving through really his whole life as, as he's, he'd experienced it. Only as a child was I thus awakened, so secure in my trust, to look upon you again after every fear and every night. He's remembering something important to him as a child. And he's trying to find a way of gathering that sense of resilience that children have that's broken out of children, often very early. The resilience that gives a child the courage to face another night and another fear and to hope that God is large enough, present enough, having trembled about through all of the ages to hold him in this time. It's the very last image I'd like to think about with you. Now the workday became simple for me. Like a holy face to my dark hands. What, what do you see here? A holy face, ein heiliges Gesicht, to my dark hands. What are these dark hands? What do you see? A whole. Maybe he's talking about his faith. They're human hands. They're dark. There's nothing, nothing in those hands yet, except this holy face. What face is it? Be like, 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 like a holy face to my dark hands. What do you think? It's a strange poem. Yeah, Lucy. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. His, his face, perhaps. Could be. We don't know. I mean, the poem is not clear. Like a holy face. The ein heiliges like a holy face. The face of the deep. There. Yeah. Yes. The face of the deep, the face of the waters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there could be. Yes, there it is. We'll come to that. Yeah, we'll come to that. That's, yes. Well, I was wondering whether maybe he refers to the icons. Could be. And icons, it's always simplicity. Yes, it is. And if you watch, I mean, in an Orthodox church today, not just back in his day, what do people do when they come to an icon? They kiss it. They put their hands on it, their dark hands on it. They kiss it. They, I mean, you can see and the icon's low enough to be touched how the gold is wear, wears away with time from people simply. Their devotion wears it away, not their malfeasance. It could be. This, Yes. Yeah. It's a great, a great notion because in the con literary conceit of these poems, he writes them as if they're written. These are I an icon painter or an icon writer. The poems are written from the vantage point of an old icon, they say writer, a painter of icons. And so it could well be that his darkened hands, he's been painting and painting and painting holy faces. And finally, in this moment of realizing that he knows what he's doing. He knows why he's doing what he's doing. He knows the work of creating the icon doesn't depend on the sanctity of the painter or the, or the expertise of the painter. It's an act of devotion, really. And so I think this poem can be read. It's, it's ambivalent, this, these last lines, in, in many different ways. It could be his face. It could be the face of the icon that he's painting. It could be the face of God or the face of Jesus. And that's really where this final section today is leading, leading us toward. In a sense, moving beyond Rilke. So we're going to hold that poem, and particularly this middle section, um, to me, because in one sense, the, the darkness that we spent so much time thinking about, looking at this morning, is not the last word. It's the place out of which light comes. And that marvelous phrase of St. Paul from 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verse 6. And God said, let light come forth out of darkness. It's an amazing midrash, an amazing interpolation of the Genesis text. And it, when you see what Paul is doing there, that, that shines in, how does it go? It shines in our hearts. How does it go? In the face, in the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the knowledge of the glory, out of the darkness, the shining comes that brings us a different kind of knowing. I want to end the day with this remarkable prayer. You have it in your sheet, and I think this one, you might want to just pull it out. Written by Pseudo-Denis or Pseudo-Dionysius, the Areopagite. We really don't know anything about who he was, probably 
be a Syrian monk. And there are reasons why scholars have discerned that. Throughout the Middle Ages, Dennis was considered to be the convert of the Apostle Paul. Language is so far removed from the language of first century um, Greek culture, or Greco-Judaic culture, that it's unimaginable that it could have been written by somebody from that era. And this is his, in a sense, the kind of crowning treatise in his writings. It begins with this prayer. The text is called Mystical Theology. Trinity, higher than any being, any divinity, any goodness. Trinity higher than any being, any divinity. How can the Trinity be higher than any divinity? What do you think? Sounds like heresy. How can the Trinity be higher than divinity? I thought the Trinity was about divinity. Yes. It's a conceptual idea. Exactly right. He's really not playing with things. He's teaching us something profound. That whatever God is, God is beyond every notion we have of God. Right? We're, we're back to Moses encountering God in the thick darkness, in the dark cloud, depending on the translation. In the thick, dark place. Trinity, higher than any being, any divinity, any goodness. Guide of Christians in the wisdom of heaven. Lead us up beyond knowing and light. <laughs> Lead us up beyond theology, beyond thinking, beyond concept, up to the farthest, highest peak of mystic scripture, where the mysteries of God's word lie simple, absolute, unchangeable, and there's the line, in the radiant darkness of a hidden silence. Lead us up beyond knowing and beyond light. Lead us into a darkness that is a radiant darkness of a hidden a silence we can't see. It's hidden. Amid the deepest shadow, they pour overwhelming light. These mysteries pour overwhelming light on what is most manifest. Amid the holy unsensed and unseen, they completely fill our sightless minds with treasures beyond all beauty. Amazing poem. And this is the part I want to think with you about. It's what follows this entering into the radiant darkness. Because what Dennis is really moving us to think our way toward, 
is that there is in the depths of the shadow, in the dark cloud, right? In the darkness that covers the face of the deep, an overwhelming light. The holy unsensed and unseen. They, the mysteries, completely fill our sightless minds with treasures beyond all beauty. That's just the framework for what I'd like to close with today. And this is one of the last lines that comes in Rilke's book of poems. For you're the miracle that happened in the desert for those who'd passed through. You, God, are the miracle. What's the, what desert is he talking about? The passing through. Sorry? Exodus, the Exodus. I mean, this is a Mo the story of Moses, the story of liberation, right? The story of moving through the desert from slavery toward freedom. What happens to Moses? Remember the story? What happens to Moses? He dies. What does he see? He stands on the hill and he looks over the Jordan. What does he see? He sees the promised land that he will never enter. He sees the vision of prosperity for this people. The story has been told. Right? And he never, he never crosses the river. It's an amazing story, really. So when Rilke is trying to figure out how to describe our journey into a land of hope, into a place of hope, through some very difficult poems. This is the image he comes back to, the Moses image. You're the miracle. You're not the miracle that brought us through. You're the miracle that happened in the desert. What does it mean? What miracle happened in the desert? The manna. What else happened? The parting of the sea. What else happened? These amazing stories. Bread. Water. Water. Paul takes this whole story and does another midrash in the 10th chapter of Corinthians, of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, where he says all of these things are about our life with God. We pass through. We wrapped on the stone which brought forth water, which he says was Christ. Not Aaron, it was Christ. He's taking the story as a kind of narrative of deliverance for each one of us. But this line, of all the lines in these poems, at the end, gets the heart of what we're talking about. You're the miracle that happened in the desert. You're the light that came out of the darkness. That's Paul's reading of the creation story. For those who'd passed through. And this one other miracle, which is a kind of an odd miracle, because how do, how do the people, how are they guided in the desert? Yes, the pillar of fire and the cloud behind them, right? And they wandered for how many years? 40 years. You know, in a way, if, if you don't have to know a lot about geography to realize that that was not very good guidance. It's not, it doesn't take 40 years to walk across the Sinai, the desert. It doesn't. It's, it's not a small place, but it would be 
I suppose like walking from here to Wales. Maybe a little farther, but not a lot farther. How long would that take you, 40 years? Only if you stop at every pub <laughs> and lubricate yourself way too much. No, in a way there's something profound there because the story is very clear. God leads them, but God is not taking them on a direct path. Why not? Wouldn't learn much. That's exactly right. We wouldn't learn much. They, didn't lear they wouldn't have learned the tenacious courage and the faith needed to become a people able to cross the river. It's an almost never commented on moment in the story that the guidance of God, the miracle of the guidance is that it was bad direction. You know, it was a GPS that was not working well. It was kind of like, I, I, can't, I, was, I was to give um, a series of talks at Salisbury earlier last year. And um, I thought, well, I'll save money. I'll bring my own GPS, you know, from Germany. And when I get to the airport, I'll just turn it, I'll rent the car, and I can save the 30 pounds. The university wants to pay for it. Great, you know, it's my Scottish blood. And uh, so I got in the car at 11 at night, you know, and I'm trying to get the salt. It's pouring rain. It's the most dismal March night imaginable. And I turn on my GPS, and there was one city, Dover. <laughs> I kid you not, Dover. Why would they put Dover in? Well, it was for Europeans who were trying to get to Dover, you know? I wasn't programmed for Britain. I didn't know that. In a way, I won't tell you the rest of the story because it, it, it's pretty hilarious. I did get to Salisbury, barely. But um, the funny part of this story, the strange part, the mysterious part, the marvelous part of the story, is that the people had to wander indirectly to learn what they needed to learn, to take the miracle seriously. I don't know that anybody has ever put, put it as clearly as Rilke, you're the miracle. You're the miracle that happened in the desert for those who passed through. And for Rilke, this is, in a sense, the image that he's leaving us with, that journeying into the darkness is, is important for us. It's unavoidable. But it's only there that we'll discover the miracle. And now I want to do something totally unrealkian. So here we go. We're back to this. You're, it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How could we make sense of that? As a way of coming around from this remarkable journey with Rilke, with three poems only of Rilke, to make sense of this. I want to take us to France. To this, some of you have seen this painting before. It's one of the great paintings of 16th century art, painted just before Luther's famous episode in Wittenberg, pounding the theses on the door, which we will hear endlessly, unendingly about, I think, this year in Germany. Maybe not so much here. The Isenheim altarpiece, um, this is, it was painted for a community, the Antonites, who were a community devoted to 
helping people who were dying from a horrid illness called St. Anthony's Fire. Anybody know anything about this? It's an experience where the body basically burns from inside. It's, there was no cure for it. And there were the, the Antonites, a, a group of, of monks, um, took this as their mission. They were going to live their mission to the most suffering people of their day. This is from the Middle Ages on, the, the period of the Black Death. Um, and what you could see, if you were a little bit closer and the picture were a little bit better, is that Jesus is suffering from this disease. His body is covered with the pockmarks of, the, of this particular form of plague. Can you see it? And this was the chapel in the Antonite community, which is where the, the suffering people lived. Their beds were all around this altar. It's really hard to imagine this today. But if you go to the museum, it's a museum now, and you go into the chapel where the painting is, is, is it's the only thing in the, in, the, in the room, but in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, this would have had not hundreds, but, but probably 50 or 60 or 70 pallets for people who were sleeping and really waiting for their end. But they're looking at this image of Jesus suffering with their disease. And of course, it's a, it's a classic triptych, which means there are many, there are wings that fold open to tell the stories, the story of Jesus' life. Uh, the resurrection scene, which is only open once in the year, or was in the Middle Ages, and that was on Easter Sunday, is an image, there's one downstairs, I don't know who the, it's an Italian painter of Jesus. Sorry? Anyway, it's a kind of a radiant Jesus standing up powerfully, coming up out of the tomb, and, I'm sorry? La Francesco. It's an image you probably would recognize, beautiful image. Soldiers are all sleeping. It's a one way of telling the story. Paul Tillich said you can't tell the story, you can't paint the resurrection. But people have tried ceaselessly. And this one shows Jesus, his body is completely healed. The, all of the marks, the wounds are there of the hands and the feet. But all the pock marks that cover his body are gone. And he stands radiantly rising up from the tomb. That's what the people, if they lived that long, would see at Easter. But I want to draw our attention as a last image today, radiant darkness, to something that you see. Who are these people? This is John the Baptist, right? Here he is, the prophet. He's holding, what's he holding in his hand? It was it's a book. It wouldn't have been a book in, in his day. It's probably the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, which prophesies of his coming. Or Zechariah. We read it this morning in prayer. Could be the prophecy of Zechariah. How does it go? Oh, and you, little child. Help me here, Henrietta. You will, co you will, you will, be, you will prepare a way in the desert. To be a light to the Gentiles. It's the prayer. Yes. There it is. There it is. 
this prophesy, that's exactly right, of the prophet Zechariah from the New Testament. So you see him, and what is written here in Latin is a phrase from John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, he must increase, I must decrease. But there's something else here that's so striking, and you can kind of feel it, the lines of the poem, the, the visual lines of the poem. This particular line of the poem. Who are these people? Who is this? John, the beloved disciple. And this? Mary, the mother. And this? Mary Magdalene. And you see here, what's this? The ointment. Right, the ointment, right? What, what ointment is that? Yes, to anoint the, uh, the body. And the stories of Mary as they were conflated together. Uh, the woman who came to Mary, to Jesus and wipes with her long hair, wipes his feet clean. And these are the most horrid feet you could imagine. There's the Mary, Mary Magdalene, at the foot of the cross. But the line of the, of the image begins here. The lamb is looking right across the painting at the suffering, not at suffering Jesus. Who is this lamb? Can you see what's happening here? It's a resurrection. It's the resurrection lamb. And can you see? We'll see what follows here. So this is, this is Jesus. This is the uh, close-up of Jesus. Suffering horrifically. So you go back here. You see it now more clearly. The lamb is silent with a gaze. And actually, if you were to see, stand here, and I hope you'll get to Komar and see this. It's amazing. The gaze of the lamb is not on, the, it's not on Jesus. It's on the Marys and John. He's gazing at the sorrowing ones, at the ones who are left behind, at the ones who must endure the death and move on in their life. And so here's Jesus. And I've put these two images together. And here's the lamb. What's happening with the lamb? What, what's happening? Yes. What, what blood is that? What, what, what's no. Yes. The iron day. What's the chalice? The, the cup of salvation. It's the Eucharist. It's an amazing image. So here, the, this is the face of Christ for Matthias Grunewald. It's both the Jesus on the cross and it's the image of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and gives drink to the people who must pass through the desert. Yes, he's dead. But the Lamb is alive. That's the point. Jesus died. Jesus is dead on the cross. But the lamb is, this is a resurrection. At the foot of the cross. And uh, now I need to eat. I think it's number four. Oh, sorry. I'm going to get this. Yeah, number four. I'll give you a side memo. Where's all this going? This is moving beyond Rilke now to, I think, frames this journey, as we've done today, 
through this small but significant chorus of theologians who've really shaped, I think, a vital spiritual tradition, one that we've turned away from far too easily. I'd like to leave us with a different image of the crucifixion than we normally see, because we normally see the cross with Jesus dead on the cross, which is here, above. But never alone, never alone. And the lamb here represents the resurrection, the suffering lamb who creates in his death the drink of salvation for those who are still passing through the wilderness. And that's our life. If there's any reason to become a Christian, it's not a theological reason. Not to me. It's a Eucharistic reason. And um, just as it really ends the poem, thanking God this deep power for holding him, for carrying him through. So we see now visually what this might look like. And we're going to hear in a moment one of the most stirring renditions of the Pie Jesu by Gabriel Fauré, a man who was not a believer in any sufficient way, but knew that this music was profoundly true and wrote as a, an honoring of his Catholic roots this version of the Pia Jesu, Domine, Dona Eis Requiem. Merciful Jesus Lord, <laughs> 